This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. If you are of a certain age, you'll recognize that piece of music as the hit song, Classical Gas. It was produced by Mason Williams, who might always assume was just, you know, a composer slash musician. Turns out, Mason Williams was that, but he was also a comedy writer. Evidently, he started out playing, uh, I guess, folk music in the early 60s, where he crossed paths with the Brothers Smothers. He started out uh, playing uh, backup music with them, I guess, and, and as they moved up the show business ranks, like a rocket, actually, he joined them as a comedy writer on the Smothers Brothers program. We start out today talking about things smothery, owing to the fact that yours truly was able to catch Tom and Dick live on stage at the Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley earlier this week. I'm proud to report that uh, Tom's mother's age 85 and his younger brother Dick, soon to be 84, still got it. These guys demonstrated just the impeccable comedy stylings and, and timing that made them famous. Well, they did not do much of a live performance, except that, well, I guess they did. They relied very much upon clips of their uh, Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and, and other clips from the past, and wove a story around them, and they did it very, very well. We were privileged on this program to speak to Dick's mothers. It was at the time of the 50th anniversary of their leaving CBS under uh, stormy circumstances, and sort of takes me aback a bit to realize that that was 13 years ago. If we have time in today's show, maybe near the end, we will uh, we will grab a couple of excerpts from our talk with uh, with Dick's mothers back in 2009 at the Throckmorton Theater. They explained how it was that they started out as a couple of musicians that were trying to introduce a bit of comedy to their act. At first, Dick would play the bass, and Tommy would make sort of comedic remarks. As it evolved, they realized that Dick could be a superb straight man, and that is something he morphed into being. It does remind me of a story of another show business legend. You may not be aware, dear listener, that there was once a stellar juggler on the vaudeville circuit in America named William Claude Duncanfield. His work has been recorded for posterity, but perhaps not adequately. He too started out with some comedy patter that he, uh, he put before the audience as he was performing his juggling, and soon the comedy took over. And he's much better known to posterity by what he morphed into, which was W.C. Fields. There were a lot of surprises at the Throckmorton Theater, among them the fact that Mason Williams wrote comedy for them. Also, that in their third season, so did Rob Reiner. So did Albert Brooks's brother, Bob Einstein, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year. Another writer of note on that program was a guy who went on to fame and fortune, known as Steve Martin. 
The brothers mentioned that this was the first uh, of what I guess is going to be some sort of tour across the country. I last saw them on the stage, I think, at the uh, Cash Creek Casino back in something like 2009. They were great. I'd seen them before that in Tahoe. They were great then, too. And judging by last week, they're still great. So if you get a chance to check them out, dear listener, well, you should consider it. And since we're starting out on a comedic note, which, which I can guarantee you will not continue as we progress, I stumbled on one item from the miscellaneous file that I, I, just, I just can't resist. A few years back, I was given a, uh, a calendar, one of those daily calendars. You pull them off one page at a time. It, had, it was about strange words in the English language and gave their definitions. The words were generally not nearly as amusing as the stories that got attached to them. The May 11th page of, of this, this compendium of what's called Forgotten English <laughs> contained uh, a notation that it was the birthday of Frederick Russell Burnham, described as adventurous and larger-than-life American scout, dedicated frontiersman, conservationist, spy, soldier of fortune, gold prospector, and an inspiration for the Boy Scouts of America and Indiana Jones. Notes he was born and raised in the Minnesota Sioux Indian Reservation. He spent considerable time outdoors, I guess so, working in the American West before he moved his family to Africa. He was once described by Teddy Roosevelt as the ideal scout and by an acquaintance as the most complete human being who ever lived. But, notes the calendar, and this is, this is why we're reading this, they note in 1910 he seriously damaged his reputation by promoting what's described as a ridiculous scheme. It was intended to both reduce America's meat shortage, and I didn't realize they had a meat shortage in 1910, but I guess they did, and to alleviate the overgrowth of the invasive water hyacinth in southern Louisiana. Yes, apparently someone thought these beautiful plants would be a wonderful thing to add to the Mississippi, and and as they've later done with the Sacramento Delta, and it didn't take long before they became a terrible pest. Frederick Russell Burnham proposed importing the African hippopotamus, which he said would voraciously consume hyacinths, as I guess they do in their native environment, in otherwise useless swamplands and bayous. He prevailed on Louisiana Congressman Bob Broussard, who was able to secure $250,000 in government funding for the project. It is noted that the two men were unable to work out the details of this hippo ranching, although apparently Burnham continued to believe in this bizarre idea and boondoggle until his death 35 years later. Mr. Rowland reminds us of a story we mentioned briefly on the show some time back that evidently at some point drug kingpin Pablo Escobar decided to be fun to import some hippopotami, or is it hippopotamuses, I'm not sure, to Colombia, where they thrived in the tropical environment. Now, if you ever go to Africa, you will probably be reminded of the fact that apparently the hippo kills more people in Africa than any other animal, although I've also heard the same claim made for the Cape Buffalo. At any rate, if you find yourself in a hippopotamus-enriched environment, we, we urge you to exercise extra caution. Of course, one thing that's never come up about the hippos down in Colombia, you know, I'm sure they have no hyacinth problem at this point. And I stumbled on a story a while back that, uh, well, it's an article I cut on a new scientist back in 2004. It certainly is a reminder of the law of unintended consequences. The article referred to the fact that the island of Aldabra, which is part of the Seychelles group, 
or the Chagas Archipelago off the eastern coast of Africa, is noted, like the Galapagos, for having species of giant tortoises on the island. Turns out back in 1965, the British, who had grabbed a lot of these islands in the Chagos Archipelago, decided that they needed to turn that island into a giant military airfield that could be reached from Europe without having to fly over potentially unfriendly Arab states. It would turn out that the former British Defense Secretary, who wanted to go ahead with this plan with Aldabra, hadn't reckoned with David Stoddard. He was a young biologist at Cambridge University who got wind of this, the government's secret plan to build an airbase. He um, went down there, documented the fact that this island had giant tortoises, unique land birds, large populations of seabirds, uh, some Aldabra was considered one of the most ecologically important atolls in the world and shouldn't be developed by the military, according to the biologist. He was able to prevail upon the Royal Society in Britain, which got behind the idea of protecting Aldabra. The good news is Aldabra was saved. This correspondent hopes to visit the Seychelles Islands sometime this year. And although it would be cool to visit Aldabra, I took a look at how far away it was from the inhabited islands and realized that ain't going to happen, which is kind of too bad. But what's really too bad about this story is the fact that the attention then focused on a different island to turn into a base. That was the island of Diego Garcia. Now, the United States wanted a base in that region, but it lacked an island of its own, (laughs) an island that was grabbed. So the British decided to give the U.S. a 50-year lease on Diego Garcia. There was a problem, though. Unlike Aldabra, there were people on that island. 1,500 descendants of African slaves and Indian plantation workers brought to Chagos over the previous 200 years to cultivate coconuts. The Americans wanted them out, not just from Diego Garcia, but from the entire archipelago. And while they talked publicly about establishing an austere communications facility, what they actually built was a giant airbase and naval port. The British government reached out and secretly removed the islanders and dumped most of them on the island of Mauritius, 2,000 kilometers away. Evidently, some were offered free boat trips to Mauritius and then refused return passage. Others were simply rounded up and shipped. Reportedly, the UK eventually paid Mauritius four million pounds to relocate the Chagosians, although much of it went astray, they say, and most of the Chagosians wound up in slums. By 1973, every last Chagosian was gone and the U.S. opened its new base. It took until the year 2001 for the High Court in London to rule that there had been no source of lawful authority for the eviction and that the people had a right to return. The Chagosians began to look forward to going home. Well, that was 21 years ago, and they're still looking forward to that. I do hope that if I make it to the Seychelles and Mauritius, I'll be able to update this report on what happened to the displaced people. And at this point, I'm not going to slide right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for mellowing, with the news that Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, now age 66, said he was really, really proud of Queen Elizabeth II for doing so well as she celebrated 70 years on the British throne. Now, in the Sex Pistols' 1977 hit, God Save the Queen, Johnny Rotten sang that the Queen headed a fascist regime and, quote, ain't no human being, end quote. And, you know, it's kind of heartwarming to see Johnny Rotten and the Queen getting together on this. Fearless, oh. 
was, on the other hand, a bad week, a really bad week for what we would call fair fights after Republican Senator John Thune of South Dakota defended the sale of military-style assault rifles designed to shred human beings because, quote, in my state, they use them to shoot prairie dogs and, you know, other types of varmints, unquote. And yes, this does raise the question of whether you need an assault rifle to shoot a prairie dog. Also, whether this, uh, this supposed usefulness of the weapon trumps other concerns about its misuse. And it was an ugly week for achieving your lifelong dreams with the news that a Japanese man has achieved his lifelong dream by becoming an animal. Well, at least by living inside an expensive Kali outfit. Apparently, after paying a professional costume company nearly $16,000 for the getup, the man, who goes by Toko, is now documenting his life as a canine on his YouTube channel. You know, we have to pause at this point and just say, isn't it great, the advances that high technology have brought us? Apparently, on his YouTube channel, you can see him walking on all fours, rolling on the floor, and I guess we presume acting very collie-like. Asked why he wanted to be a dog, Toko said it was difficult to answer. Mr. Whelan says he's going to investigate that possibility that the, uh, the, the motion picture industry may want to revive the Lassie series using Toko. And just to prove that uh, it's not just conservatives that are crazy when it comes to the gun issue, we have this. And we're not sure, well, we're sure it's not good. We're just not sure whether it's bad or ugly. It's a little of both. Evidently, two days after the Ovalde school massacre, California lawmakers voted to repeal a law requiring schools to alert police if students make threats of violence. Democratic State Senator Stephen Bradford said mandatory reporting could have a disproportionate impact on black students and Latinx, that's his term, Latinx students, because they're disproportionately referred to law enforcement. Well, I, I don't know, Senator Bradford. It seems like most of the shoot 'em ups we're familiar with involved white guys. But we're sure glad to see political correctness dominating the discussion. And speaking of public discussion, the, the Views columnist in New Scientist uh, from a couple weeks back penned an item that I think we should quote from. Science journalist Annalie Newlitz said in her column that the U.S. myth of free speech needs to be addressed. Elon Musk, she notes, claims he wants to buy Twitter to save free speech, but it is a fallacy, she argues, that we should be able to say whatever we want. Quote, last month, Elon Musk, the richest person in the world, was about to buy Twitter. He lined up financing for the bonkers $44 billion price tag, and then he backed off. The whole sequence of events was corporate melodrama at its finest, but it was also an object lesson in how a myth unique to the U.S. about free speech, has shaped Silicon Valley media companies. Twitter is an unlikely darling among techno-barons who value exponential growth. In 16 years of existence, Twitter has rarely been profitable. Tech journalist Casey Newton recently called the company weak, mismanaged, and with an extremely mediocre ads business. Its former CEO was Jack Dorsey. 
notes Newlis, Musk didn't frame his decision in terms of the company's financial track record or future profits. He claimed he was doing it to save democracy. Writing in late May, she notes that roughly two weeks later, Musk declared that he would reverse the Twitter ban on former U.S. President Donald Trump. The ban was put in place in January 2021 after Trump incited an armed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to overturn the results of the presidential election. More on that in a moment. Elon Musk said it was a mistake to ban Trump because it struck a blow against free speech. As if to demonstrate what he imagines free speech should look like on Twitter, Musk recently responded to comments from Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal with a poop emoji. Notes Newlitz, because Twitter is a corporation, free speech laws don't apply. It can ban anyone it likes. This is legal. The First Amendment applies to the government. Notes Newlitz, when Musk and other Silicon Valley media entrepreneurs talk about free speech, they aren't talking about reality of U.S. law. They're talking about a myth. The myth that everyone in the U.S. is a rugged individual dependent on no one, and we should be able to say whatever we want to whomever we want. Politicians should be allowed to say that fair elections were rigged. Racists should be allowed to blame Jewish people for chemtrails. If people in the U.S. say something bad or hurtful, the myth goes, the solution is more speech, not moderation in what we say. She then quotes media researcher and journalist Peter Pomerantzer, who points out in his book, This Is Not Propaganda, that the Cold War generation fought for unfettered expression as a solution to censorship. More information was supposed to mean more freedom. But then, in the 21st century, a new crop of anti-democratic politicians figured out more information can actually work as a form of mass persuasion run amok on social media. Speech begets more speech until the whole internet is an infinite doom scroll. Instead of being set free, our minds are being contained by a flood of meaninglessly cruel poop emojis. Ordinary citizens trying to understand the world on social media are overwhelmed with negative messages. We witness vicious, polarizing debates, and we watch helplessly as mobs of trolls descend on anyone who is deemed unsavory. When free speech metastasizes into chaos speech, we no longer know whether it's true or false. We don't trust one another, and productive debates in the public sphere become impossible. It turns out, she writes in conclusion, that the information overload is just as toxic to democracy as censorship is. We need to chuck out the U.S. myth that bad speech can be, quote, cured, unquote, with more speech. Without moderation, ground rules for debate, and thoughtful regulation in our, di- in our digital public squares, it is impossible for us to reach agreement on anything. Well said, I think. I disagree with her. Well, thank God you've got free speech rights to do that. Right here on Radio I Parallax. I see. Well, it's great to have a spirited debate in the public arena. Not according to her. So you think Trump ought to be back on Twitter? Yes. You do? Yes, I do. Okay, well, we can agree to disagree. Well, since we're backing into the whole controversy over the insurrection that took place on January 6th, we do note that hearings are being held right now in Washington investigating this. We've been scoffing all along at how it is they're investigating with Congressional Committee what happened. In lieu of convening grand juries and prosecuting, far as I understand it, it's against the law to promote an insurrection. It's against the law to try and overthrow the government of the United States. It's against the law to start a riot. And it's my understanding that people who do such things can and should be prosecuted. And yeah, while it's true that the, the, the QAnon shaman 
apparently is uh, in the slammer right now. The guy who organized the entire affair is still walking around, not even under indictment. We do want to note that a lot of comparisons are being made between the the current hearings of the House. The Senate refused to get involved in any of this, but the House showed enough fortitude to uh, put hearings before the American public and put them on television. 49 years ago, when the Senate was more reasonable, we had hearings related to Watergate. And And we do want to note that we are likely to have on this program Jefferson Morley, whose current book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate, is a barn burner. We've spoken to Jefferson Morley twice in the past about his book, Our Man in Mexico, concerning Win Scott, the CIA station chief in Mexico City in the 1960s. Also, The Ghost, the strange tale of James Angleton. They are both fine books, and if you did not hear our, our discussion about them with Jeff Morley, we refer you to our archives, dear listener. This third book is the best of the lot, and we, we, we really can't wait to bring him back on the show and discuss it. If you think you know what happened in Watergate, we're here to tell you, well, you don't. Or at least there's a lot you are surely unaware of. We would point out by way of a teaser that if you think the Watergate affair, which ended in the only presidential resignation in U.S. history, was about the fact that Dick Nixon ordered a burglary of the Watergate building, we're here to tell you, you're wrong. The reason that Dick Nixon resigned the presidency in 1974 had to do with the cover-up of the burglary. The burglary itself has many mysterious aspects to it, many of which are explored in Scorpion's Dance. It seems in retrospect that both Richard Nixon and Richard Helms, CIA director, had a vested interest in not having too close a look made at the five men who were caught in the building and the two men that were monitoring them outside and running the operation. It would turn out, as I think Jeff Morley makes the case, that a lot of the things that were hidden during the time of Watergate did, in fact, come out. At least a great number of them did in subsequent investigations by the Rockefeller Commission, set up by Gerald Ford, and the Pike and Church investigations in the House and Senate, respectively, into what the hell our intelligence agencies had been up to. Things that are now in the history books, the fact that the CIA contracted with mafia chieftains to try and assassinate Fidel Castro and evidently succeeded in assassinating quite a few foreign leaders. Um, Well, we know that happened now, but we very much were unaware of that at the time of Watergate, and no one was keen to have that get out. We'll have more to say about that when we talk to Jeff Morley. Anyway, back to the current hearings. We, we do hope also to hear from uh, our friend Stephen Harper, about um, who is an expert on things related to Donald Trump, Russiagate, and his mishandling of the COVID-19 epidemic. We do need to hear what he's got to say about the turning of Bill Barr. Bill Barr, who served as Attorney General under Donald Trump for the second time. He'd previously been the Attorney General under George Herbert Walker Bush who we would remind people was brought in by Jerry Ford back in 1976 to head the CIA. As documented well on this program and all over the place, Bill Barr stymied the probe that was started by Robert Mueller. He basically censored it, said, there's nothing to see here, folks, keep moving. And for that was accused 
well, we would say appropriately by Democrats for lying to Congress and covering up Donald Trump's corruption. Notes CNN is the mark of the extreme choices that Trump forces upon those who serve him that the ultra-conservative career lawyer Bill Barr now finds himself on the same side as liberal one-time accusers in defending America's democracy. Before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attempted coup in the U.S. Capitol, Barr dismisses the former president's election fraud lies as bullshit, crazy, amateurish, and total nonsense. Note CNN, his gruff bluntness is not just dismembering the ex-president's fantastic claims that he won the 2020 election, but is also hacking away at the entire false premise of Trump's nascent 2024 campaign that he was cheated out of power and deserves to get his job back. It does seem that Bill Barr is trying to entrench his role for posterity as part of Team Normal in the Trump administration. That was the description of ex-campaign manager Bill Stepien, who, in his own recorded testimony before the House Select Committee, revealed that the aides around Trump were trying to explain to him that, no, that he didn't have any, any evidence that was going to stand up for voter fraud, but was revealed that Trump evidently instead decided to listen to an inebriated Rudy Giuliani. Of course, that's an overstatement. Trump wanted to believe what he wanted to believe. Giuliani told him what he wanted to believe, and he just decided to believe it. Bill Barr commented that, that he said, I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has lost contact with. He, he's become detached from reality if he really believes this. Well, the truth of the matter is, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, tr- Trump believes what he says, regardless of the facts. You, you may have known people like this. Dear listener, unfortunately, I've known a few of them that even though they're liars, when they say something, they want to believe it because they just said it. And I have to confess to something, which I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly proud of, but I'm going to confess to it anyway. I didn't vote last week. I took a look at all the races. I took a look at the issues and concluded that my vote was simply not going to matter. If we weren't somewhat pressed for time today, I would, I would read, I would quote from the candidate statements from the voter pamphlet that we all received, just to cite some of the sheer ludicrousness of what people who are supposedly running for high office said or decided it was important to say in the candidate statements. Although I have to quote, I think, one short one. In the race for the United States Senate here in California, Akinyeme Agbede, running on the label of Democrat, said this, Rescue America, three exclamation points. America must be revived from collapsing. He capitalized revived. Therefore, electing Dr. Akinyeme Agdebe for the United States Senate is the answer. Now, we here at Radio Parallax discern some flaws in this argument, but I think we're going to hold off for times when we need more comedy relief. We also note, sadly, that a lot of people ran for the various races as independents, and it looks as though they pretty much failed miserably. Sadly, even here in California, where we supposedly prize independent thought and our politicians, and 23% of people are registered as independent, you know, when people step in the voting booth, if they don't know the candidate by name, they often vote based on party label. All right, we've got about one minute left before we need to take a break, and, and most of the items that I'm looking at right now are going to take more than a minute. So let me, let me grab one item that we could have put in the good and the bad and the ugly, but we'll just let it stand independently. 
I think I'll introduce it by saying it was a bad week for loopholes recently with the news that hundreds of people in Taiwan changed their names to include the word salmon to take advantage of a restaurant promotion, and now some are unable to change their names back. Evidently, the chain Sushiro offered free all-you-can-eat sushi to anyone with Gui Yui salmon in their names. 331 people legally adopted names such as Salmon Dream and Dancing Salmon. Some then found they were stuck because of a rule limiting citizens to three name changes. Lawmakers are now debating how to respond to what is being called salmon chaos. As much as we know that our our activist, our fishing activist, Dan Bacher, is concerned about salmon, we probably won't confer with him on this particular case. Personally, I think if you're dumb enough to change your name to Salmon so you can stuff all-you-can-eat sushi in your face, you deserve to be stuck with the name. This is Radio Parallax, and you take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away.